maybe we can end this podcast with everybody doing their best blue steel, especially since our <laughs> podcast is anyways. Thank you. You're amazing. We're recording. In the house. Welcome back to season two of Health Equity from the Frontlines. I'm Dr. Roger Liu, and I'm joined by my co-hosts and fellow colleagues from the Ultimate Institute for Health Equity, Dr. Marco Angulo and Tatiana Alvarez. Hi, everyone. This season, we'll be talking to people working on the front lines and, of course, some folks who are working to get there. Being on the front lines means tackling the barriers that keep us from living healthy lives. This work is endless. You could be a nurse treating patients in the clinic, or you could be an organizer going door to door to get community members vaccinated. This podcast is all about the amazing work being done in our underserved communities and the inspirational and motivational stories of those behind the scenes committed to making a difference. This season, we'll be talking to folks who are investing in people power, as well as experts who are working directly with patients and students who are doing all they can to join us on the front lines sharing their own successes and failures on their path to medical and graduate school. We are excited to start season two with a very special guest. Today, we're joined by Dr. Christine Koh. Dr. Koh is an internist and trained psychiatrist working to bring mental health to communities that are often left behind. Her work involves integrating mental health care into the primary care setting. And what does that mean exactly? It means taking a more accessible approach to the treatment of a person's mental and physical health, both delivered by primary care providers that patients have already built a relationship and trust with. In addition, Dr. Ko combines her psychiatric expertise with her knowledge of historical injustices. She has a deep understanding of how lived experiences and history impacts an individual's mental well-being and brings all these together to create a lens of care that is both inclusive and understanding. I was fortunate to be part of a special Altamed Grand Rounds addressing the recent wave of anti-Asian American Pacific Islander hate crimes, where Dr. Ko presented a brief and powerful history of AAPI racism in this country. Not only did I learn a lot about the subject, it was great to have someone to talk to and share my own similar life experiences. And I'm very excited to have her as a guest for today's episode. Dr. Angula, can you please give us a little more about Dr. Ko's professional background and why it is so important that we have psychiatry and mental health services for the patients you see here at Altamed? Absolutely. So Dr. Ko recently joined Altamed in 2020 and is a practicing physician at our Commerce Clinic. She is leading the development of Altamed Psychiatry Services and currently serves as our sole consulting psychiatrist. In addition, Dr. Ko is a colleague and a member of the Altamed Institute for Health Equity. We're proud of her for that. She graduated magna cum laude with a degree in molecular biology from Pomona College. Then Dr. Ko went to UCLA for medical school and UC Davis for residency, completing, get this, a combined internal medicine and psychiatry program, where she served as a chief resident as well as receiving the UC Davis Outstanding Graduating Psychiatry Resident of the Year Award. Wow. Dr. Ko is board certified in both internal medicine and psychiatry and neurology. Now, prior to Altamed, Dr. Ko served as a psychiatrist at the Sacramento County Mental Health Treatment Center, and she holds numerous publications, awards, and honors, which include four book chapters. 
it's just so exciting for us to have a psychiatrist working at Altamed and building a psychiatry department. From all of us who see patients on a daily, thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Ko, for, for being here at Altamed, and welcome to our podcast. Yay! Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to be joining you all on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Ko, for joining us. I'm also a huge fan of yours. I love the ground rounds that you did with the team. I am a huge fan, and um, I just think you're a all-around chingona. Like, that's what I would say in Spanish. Andale. <laughs> but you are a chingona through and through. You're working in our community. You represent, and I love the information you bring and the voice you bring to the table. So thank you for being part of this. Nice. That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about your path to psychiatry? Was that something that when you thought about becoming a physician or when you thought about becoming a physician, was that the type of physician that you thought you would be and or when did you think about it and what, what made you change your mind? Yeah, um, I actually came into medical school wanting to be a primary care doctor. You know, that's where I felt was the most need. And also, like, I don't like doing procedures. Like, that's being inside the hospital, high acuity. That's not my jam. I just really like developing patient uh, relationships with patients, hearing their stories. And so I remember um, I decided to have psychiatry as my first rotation of med school because, oh, I thought, you know, I want it to be chill. I want to, you know, you know, dip my toe into the third year of medical school before, you know, going off, you know, the deep end into some of the stuff like surgery or internal medicine. And it was at the VA. And, um, you know, this, the, the experience I remember was actually, um, there was a psych clinic within the primary care clinic at the VA. So actually fairly similar to what I'm doing and creating now at Ultimate. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. Why doesn't this model exist you know, in more places? Um, and so that's what really got me into psychiatry, but I you know, couldn't give up the primary care bug. And so I ended up applying to combine internal medicine and psychiatry programs, which there aren't too many of those mm. across the country. Um, and so I really wanted to be able to deliver, compre deliver comprehensive care to my patients, but also, um, and, you know, I'm really lucky to say that, you know, what I wanted to do as a med student is still something that I'm doing 10 years down the road, which is kind of crazy. People oftentimes change their minds, um, but getting to work on models of care that will increase, you know, accessibility of mental health care, primary care settings. Like I'm living the dream I love right that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks, Dr. Thanks, Dr. Uh, Dr. Ko. Dr. Ko, can you tell us what motivated you to pursue a career in psychiatry working with underserved communities? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, by the time I graduated combined residency in internal medicine and psychiatry, it was a pretty simple decision tree. You could either pick a job, you know, as a primary care doctor, as a psychiatrist, where the social justice component was built in, or, you know, I could pick a job as a primary care doctor or a psychiatrist and have those things, you know, be interests on the side, things you do outside of work. And it just made a lot of sense to me to want to spend my day to day, my every day, um, really engaging in something that was core and central to my beliefs and values. You know, that's what was meaningful uh, to me. Um, and so, you know, a lot of that had to do too uh, with the background in social justice that I had in college with some of the stuff you mentioned working with Asian American communities. And that story is um, 
a little bit longer, um, but I would say if I had to summarize that portion, you know, um, I went into college growing up in a place that was predominantly Asian American and going to Pomona College, still LA County, but looks real different, I have to say. Um, and it was really um, in that space that I began to identify as an Asian American, right? It was not just like, you know, checking a racial box, but really like thinking of it as like a political identity. Right, thinking of shared legacies, shared histories, but also, you know, shared desires for a specific type of future. Um, and so, you know, getting involved with Asian American activist organizations, taking ethnic studies classes, like that's what it was so critical to my personal growth and totally makes me the person um, that I am today. And, and I think a lot of our podcast listeners would probably, you know, share some of these same experiences as well. Yes. Um, yeah, like, oh my gosh, I remember I took a, you know, like first day of college, they have these little booths and you know, you go to the different um, departments and they have their classes. And the class I saw was second generation immigrants. And I was that was like mind blowing mm. because it was kind of like, what? They're like people study like my parents. People <laughs> would study me like this is valuable. This is worthwhile. Like that's crazy. And it really ended up being like a starting ground to learning about other communities of color their marginalized communities and really starting to think about like, hey, like what are the interlocking systems that really tie a lot of these communities together? And then you throw in the realities of working in a county hospital and safety net systems and like it just becomes so much more real um, that it, you know, looking into my career, it's like, of course, I'm going to work in these settings. I know the podcast listeners can't hear us, but you should see Roger, Marco, and I just like nodding our heads. We look like bobbleheads because <laughs> yeah, yeah. this resonates Absolutely. with us so much. And it's just like, yes, yes. Absolutely. And how important uh, actually college and those ethnic study courses are. Mm -hmm. And then makes you think like, you know, you, some I didn't get taught this in high school. You know, I had to wait until I went to, uh, to community college to actually learn learn this stuff. And it really yeah. shaped, changed my life. So it's that's why we're nodding and bobbing our heads like, yep, that's yeah. it. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, you know, you wish everybody gets a chance to kind of discover this. And, you know, people have their own process. People learn things, you know, at different times in their lives. And but, you know, I, I don't know who I would be without having that experience. Yeah, I have to I have to share my embarrassing story that I, I told Dr. Ko earlier where, you know, I went to uh, I went to UC Berkeley for my undergraduate and I had the great opportunity to take Ethnic Studies 130, which is with Professor Ron Takaki, who is an amazing author and amazing expert in the field of uh, Asian American experience. And of course, I took it pass not pass as I was trying to plunge my way through all my science classes and my research. So. It is something I think a lot about uh, in terms of my own experience and how I, you know, I looked at those classes maybe not as important as my science classes and my research, but um, I'm trying to catch up for it now. So with that, <laughs> I think Co it planted the seed. It I, planted the seed, Dr. Lou, for absolutely. all the things we'll soak in at this point in time. I was too immature to realize, well, probably still am. <laughs> so Altamed is a federally qualified healthcare yeah. center and FQHC which predominantly serves in the Latinx community. What is it like identifying as an Asian American provider serving communities who come from different backgrounds to yours? And how do you find that common ground? So to be honest, I uh, probably worried about this for, I took three months off between the end of residency and starting. And I think I worried about this every single day for about three months, you know, this idea of working with mostly Latino communities, not speaking, um, Spanish myself and just like 
wanting to do do right by people, right? Wanting to give the best care possible, knowing some of these limitations. And, you know, definitely when somebody's coming to you in a psychiatric interview, they're telling their story, they're telling, you know, they're so vulnerable, you just you want to do a really good job. And so I kind of admit to myself that finding that common ground wasn't going to be in, in speaking Spanish. But, you know, what I was, you know, really confident in was my ability to be curious, be curious about their stories, but also really be curious about uh, myself to reflect on my own belief systems, my own values, my own experiences that really also impact the relationship that I have um, with patients. Um, and so that, that kind of sounds like a little abstract, but I guess, you know, I'm going to be a psychiatrist here, so I'm going to use some psychiatry words. But there's in psychiatry, there's right. a term called countertransference, which is really about like how the um, psychiatrist feels about the patient. And I really use those feelings as a starting point for exploration of like what the heck, you know, is going on. So like, for example, um, sometimes I'll see a patient for an hour and afterwards I'll be like really surprised, like surprised how well it went or surprised that I wasn't expecting, you know, whatever happened in the encounter. And then I really take the time to reflect then back to like, what is it that I actually expected knowing very little about this patient, maybe only having read the chart, you know, like what information did I have that made me think of, about them in this way? You know, what existing preconceived notions did I have about them? And, you know, what's it informed? I perhaps some of these things are stereotypes. And so using that as a place to explore and really break down what I think I know about people or about the world has been really helpful in terms of connecting with people from backgrounds that I don't share. Um, and so because, you know, so much of psychiatry and medicine, we like to think that we're like super objective, you know, but in reality, we're not. And so it's constantly having to reflect on what we bring to the table in a, an encounter with a patient is so important. And it's, you know, part of this larger framework um, of something called cultural humility. Thank you, Dr. Ko. So, go I was going to say, please. I love that. Um, and I think that's what makes why I'm such a big fan of you, Dr. Ko, and, and and every, all the providers that I've had the honor of interacting with at Altimed, I think we're all kind of aware that there's similarities in, within our culture. And I think we've had this conversation, but mm -hmm. we're also aware that everybody's individual experience is important and that we need to reflect on that culture. Nobody's is the same. And I don't think mm -hmm. I've gotten that anywhere else apart from Altimed. So I didn't know there was a correct term for it. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I will let you know that the rest of this podcast is basically me being a hype hype woman for this idea of cultural <laughs> humility i planned this out um this is what i did this weekend so um we'll talk more it. about that yeah <laughs> i gotta have an agenda in all of this so i like it yeah you know i i do talk to uh have a few psychiatrist friends right um and and it's just really nice and just completely reassuring to hear not only that you work at Altamed, but uh, that we're colleagues here in the health equity. But uh, do you find, do you, I don't even know how to phrase this because you, the things that you said, that's not the how my psychiatrist friends from other places speak. And, you know, I mean, I just wanted to kind of, do you find, did, have you found your, your niche here with, with others in your, in your field in this? Yeah, you know, I think part of residency training, you learn about how much of psychiatry is really tied up with the law, right? A psychiatrist can evaluate somebody, place somebody on involuntary hold for 72 hours, like super, super tied up. And, you know, I think so much of my training, you know, I had 
I was learning on my own of like, what do you do with this power? How do you use it responsibly? Kind of especially, you know, I think in light of Black Lives Matters, George Floyd, like we we know what, what power the law and the police can have and how do we actually use it for somebody's um, benefit? Um, and that's kind of an ongoing negotiating process that I'm going through. I don't think there'll be ever a clear cut answer, but you know, you have to want to engage in it. I think it's something that can very easily be put in the back of your mind. Um, but I think with the communities we work with, it's something that you have to bring to the forefront. Yeah, you know, it's something that maybe a lot of people don't know, that whole 5150, the hold, right? As a family physician, I can't do that. I don't have mm -hmm. that ability to put someone on hold. As a psychiatrist, you do, right? right? You can say, let's put them on hold. And that's that carries a lot of responsibility because you're diagnosing someone or you're saying, look, this person needs to be contained and, you know, be restrained. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so like you're, that... you're saying somebody's civil liberties need to be placed on a temporary hold to be evaluated because you're concerned that they're gravely disabled, a danger to themselves or a danger to other people. So That's real world consequences. Of, yeah. Very power, heavy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Glad it's in your hands. <laughs> you know what? Uh, interestingly enough, I can't do it here at Ultimate. Uh, we are not one of the places where we can write it. So that's why we have to call like crisis emergency services when we're concerned about somebody needing hospitalization and stuff. So, And it's not just psychiatrists. LCSW psychologists can also place these initial holds too. But not something we do here, but definitely generally within the purview of mental health. So... With that being said, mental health issues are, are often stigmatized, you know, making that treatment even more difficult to, to access, especially for communities of color. Help me understand this a little bit. Uh, you come with a wealth of knowledge. You are an expert on this. You've even had some chapters uh, written in books. You are the specialist. What can we do to better understand patient concerns? I would say that, you know, aside from this maintaining this position of curiosity and self-critique, um, I think it's really important. And actually, this kind of goes back to something we talked about earlier, recognizing the patient provider power dynamic, the imbalance that there is, and also the historical legacies that may actually make it really hard for somebody to get help from what you mentioned, you know, like, for example, psychiatry pathologized homosexuality in the DSM until 1973. Um, the diagnosis of schizophrenia has been inappropriately, you know, placed on a lot of black men, especially in the civil rights era in the 1960s, um, in, in an effort to really stop protesting um, in the civil rights movement. And so, you know, and we talked about earlier, psychiatry is just tied up with the law as well. And so, you know, we have to be able to engage with that and realize, like, these are the risks people are taking when they come to my office and decide to talk to me. And so things I like to really ask patients about to really figure out what their experience has been is like, you know, what has been your previous experience with mental health? You know, why did you decide to get care now? If you've been suffering for years and years, like what changed that you're here to get care now? And then also, you know, what are your concerns in receiving this care? Because what I want to create with this patient is an effort to really clarify a new type of relationship, a new type of patient provider um, experience. Wow. With, with not knowing this, what, what can be done to bridge the gaps in mental health care overall? I've touched on a couple different things so far, and they all really add up to this idea, this framework that has been so critical to my residency training and understanding of the world. 
Um, and it's this idea called cultural humility. And so it was first coined by doctors Melly Turvalon and Dr. Jan Murray Garcia back in 1998. And I snuck it in, but we've actually talked about the first two tenets already. <laughs> One being, you know, lifelong learning, self-criticism, maintaining this curiosity. But number two, addressing power imbalances within the patient-physician dynamic as well. And so this last part is really thinking much more broadly, right? The first two were more about, you know, individual interactions between patient and provider. The last arm is really thinking about, you know, how do we use the power that we have as physicians to help advocate for the communities that we're in? And so I think this is a huge reason as to why, you know, I joined Ultimate and, you know, have this incredible opportunity to work at the Institute for Health Equity, because this is the third arm. It's not just what we do as physicians, but also the institutions and organizations that we're a part of. Like, how does this fit within the cultural humility um, framework? And so I think that's really how we how we how we actually bridge the major major gaps. There's only so much one provider can do, but as an organization with policy, there's so much more um, that we can do to help our patients. We traditionally end our podcast with advice for our listeners out there, many of whom are on their path to joining you on the front lines, many interested themselves in careers in behavioral health and as future psychiatrists. What advice would you offer them, including how they can maintain their own positive mental health and care, whether it is studying for the MCAT, their first year of graduate school or residency? This is what my mom tells me, actually. She always tells me, be kind to yourself, be kind to yourself. Um, and, you know, it took a lot of residency to get to a place where I was, you know, much more comfortable with the idea of that. And, you know, I'll, you know, I'll kind of tell you why. You know, when you're, when you're working on the front lines, when you're taking care of patients, when things go terribly wrong, patients don't get better, um, you know, they get more sick. The tendency is actually to really want to blame yourself. Like, what could I have done differently? Um, and that really operates with an idea that somehow we have total control over our patients. And then the other, the flip side to that, sometimes I would find myself thinking like, oh, this patient's getting better. Ah, they didn't need me. You know, they're doing it on their own. And when you think about it that way, you're like thinking about it as if you have like no control whatsoever. They're just doing their thing. They're doing better. They don't need you. And it's kind of like mind boggling to think like, how do you, Juggle like both those things at the same time that you both have total control and you also cannot you like, you know, have no control. You don't help your patients at all. They just do well on their own. And so I had to like I came up with this like mantra to myself, you know, that um, I'm going to say like two things and that, you know, they both can be true, you know, that you don't have much control over your patients lives after they leave your clinic. But at the same time, you can have a positive impact on somebody's life, even if you don't know exactly how much even if, you're exact, if your interactions with them are limited. And, you know, I think that's why we continue to show up for our patients each and every day because you just don't know. And being, uncomfortable, being comfortable with that unknown um, is part of the growing process. Thank you, Dr. Ko. So, Marco, I think we found our, uh, Dr. found our new chief wellness officer for I'm, I'm going to, I know I'm going <laughs> to keep looping this over and over. And I think like when you said that, like, I guess like, you know, we always blame, you know, be kind to ourselves and we always end up blaming each other. I think all of us were like, ah, somebody knows, somebody understands us. So, yeah. and then I can't even imagine how many people are going through that now 
listening now that to this, you yeah. know, whether whatever it is, whether it's school, whether it's work with whatever, and just blaming themselves over not being kind, you know, and it's, it mm-hmm. takes a toll. It really does. Yeah, Not you giving yourself that. the credit when it's due, but also when, you know, things don't go as planned, blaming yourself completely for it. It's, it's a, it can feel really black and white sometime and just trying to live in the gray. It can be a, a struggle. So then are you interested in being the chief uh, wellness officer? Uh, let me get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> We're ready. <laughs> Dr. Koth, thank you so much for being our guest today for today's podcast. Thank you so much for launching season two in such a great, great way. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, everyone. Have a great rest of the day. I want to thank our very special guest, Dr. Christine Ko. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health Equity from the Frontlines, brought to you by the Ultimate Institute for Health Equity. On behalf of our co-hosts, Dr. Marco Angulo and Tatiana Alvarez, this is Dr. Roger Liu reminding everyone, if you ever feel discouraged on your path, to remember these words. The tendency is actually to really want to blame yourself. Like, what could I have done differently? But at the same time, you can have a positive impact on somebody's life, even if you don't know exactly how much. That's why we continue to show up for our patients each and every day, because you just know. And being comfortable with that unknown is part of the growing process. Stay safe and keep on fighting. We'll see you on the front lines.